Well, it's nice to see everybody here. Uh, everybody looks satisfied and pleasantly sated, if not slightly bloated. Or am I just projecting? Perhaps, I don't know. But I uh, uh, hope you had it all, uh, a pleasant holiday, family and friends. Uh, as promised, we are wrapping up today our Pauline Prison series. Uh, the letters that Paul wrote from prison, and prison, we're going to look today at the book of Philemon. Um, this letter was written about the same time as Paul's other letters to Colossae and Ephesus and Philippi, and, and, and it was included, sent along with a package of letters that were delivered along the route as the, uh, the deliverers made their way. Uh, it was hand-delivered, and so it was in this class of other letters which were del- delivered to the churches at these places, to the church at Philippi and Ephesus. And, um, but this one, this letter, is, is, was a little bit different. This letter was written not to a specific church necessarily. It was written to a specific person, a person named Philemon. And it was written with a specific person in mind, as we'll see, uh, specific purpose in mind. So this letter does not have Paul's traditional orthodoxy section like all of the other letters had. It doesn't really have a specific orthopraxy section like all the others had because this whole thing really is about orthopraxy. This whole thing is about right living. It, it, it's living in light of right beliefs. It's about allowing faith to change us. This letter is all about the application of the gospel, how to apply God's truth in the real world, or at least the real world at that time. Our circumstances are a bit different. So over the centuries, some have argued that this particular letter shouldn't really have been included in the canon of Scripture. Uh, they argued that this is just a personal letter. It was, it was just sent to a guy. And, and, and frankly, it's too personal a letter to be revealed publicly, certainly to include in the entire canon of Scripture. Or they have argued that, that there really is no larger, general, broad-reaching application outside of this specific issue of a slave and his master. Uh, but I think you'll see as we go through that those arguments are not only thin— but they're ultimately quite wrong. So let's start with prayer, and then we'll jump in. Lord, what a privilege it is to gather together this morning to uh, bring you honor and praise and worship and to do it in this congregational setting. Um, Lord, I, I... Hopefully, we trust that we're all living our our individual prayer lives, worship lives, Monday through Saturday, but there's something um, great and glorious that happens when we all get together and worship together on Sunday mornings, and we thank you for this opportunity. I pray that as we go through this um, short but deep book this morning, Lord, that we see any number of applications for our lives. We may not have slaves. Um, we, not, we may not be slaves in the traditional sense, but there's so much more meaning and depth here to this story. And I pray that you help it find a, a place in our hearts and our souls um, in how we interact with other people around us. We thank you for your great, great love for us, for your overflowing grace, your abundant mercy, um, and how it should give us faith uh, and, and the kind of faith that helps us change things, us specifically. Thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So because this letter uh, to Philemon was written about the same time as all the other letters as, that we've studied, um, we're going to see some of the same themes and ideas from the other letters as well. In fact, we'll see uh, the opening remarks are very reminiscent of all of the other letters that we've looked at in this series. 
starting in verse 1, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We've come to kind of expect this from Paul's letters. It's pretty typical stuff here. He announces himself, it's, it's Paul writing, uh, and Timothy along with him. Um, but given the content and the theme of the letter as we go forward, it, I think it's kind of particularly interesting that Paul refers to himself right up front as a slave for Christ Jesus. It's kind of, kind of helping to set the tone, kind of helps set the mood, the frame of mind here. It, it is thematically correct for the letter, um, and it helps establish a tone for Philemon, who would have been the initial reader, and then for the others as well. So Timothy is mentioned here. He's probably the actual scribe, the writer, and Paul's contributing the content for the most part. And Paul announces this letter is to Philemon, our, our, our beloved fellow worker. Now, the other names here, Apphia and Archippus, they involve a bit of conjecture or assumption on our part. We don't really know for sure who these people are. However, in context, it, most commentators believe that Apphia is likely the wife of Philemon and, and Archippus is their son. Uh, and so Paul says to you, Philemon, Apphia, Archippus, and the church in your home. So you kind of get the sense that they're all living together in this home and they're hosting the church. So it seems likely they're the host family. And I think we can reasonably assume that Philemon and his family have some measure of wealth. We talked about this last week at the end of Colossians, where Nympha is mentioned as hosting a church in her house. And we just kind of assume that they had some wealth. They have a house big enough to host a church gathering. So Philemon and his family have a house large enough to accommodate this regular church gathering. Um, And we also know that this letter is directed to Philemon, but Paul's mention of the church to Philemon and these other people and the church, it probably means that he intends for this letter to be written, read aloud in the church also. Hmm, this is a very personal issue written to a very personal person, and it's to be read out loud. This could get awkward. This could be embarrassing. I don't think we have to dig too deep here to imagine ourselves you know, whatever issue we struggle with, whatever, whatever uh, problem we might be having, and we receive a personal letter from Paul about that situation, that's concerning enough, but then to find out that we're supposed to read this aloud in church on Sunday. It's a little bit unnerving. And yet that's what Paul seems to call for. There, so there's something here that needs to be shared. Some principle or some concept that will benefit everyone, not just Philemon. And I think we'll see what that is as we go on. And then, of course, we see Paul's customary grace to you. Peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. True to form, Paul starts virtually every letter with a a reminder of God's grace. And it's never more appropriate than it might be in this particular letter, given what's coming next. Verse 4. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I've derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. So Paul starts off with some very kind words for Philemon. He he says he prays for Philemon often because he has been a faithful follower of Christ. He's repeatedly and regularly demonstrated his love for the Lord and for all the saints, in part at least by opening his church, opening his home for the church. 
Now, remember last week, Paul mentioned again at the end of of Colossians, uh, Paul told the church in Colossae to remind Archippus of his ministerial duties. So it seems as though, again, we might infer that that, uh, Philemon and Archippus were kind of the the church leaders. They they provided leadership for this home church. And while Archippus may have been slacking in his duties, there's no mention of that to Philemon here. That doesn't seem to be a concern. So Paul acknowledges here the faithfulness of Philemon. He says, he prays that Philemon's sharing of his faith may become effective. Effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. So, if we're getting this right, Paul's saying he's praying that the sharing of Philemon's faith, the sharing of sound teaching, which leads to right belief, I pray that the faith, that that right belief, becomes effective and that it leads to right living. Faith becomes effective when we put it into practice. And right living will lead to the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. This is a somewhat nuanced thought. So while Paul is commending Philemon on his solid right-believing faith, he's also reminding him that right belief should work itself out in right living. That's when it becomes most effective. It moves from theoretical to practical. So given the theme of this letter and where Paul is going next, this statement might be what we call foreshadowing. Paul, how are you going to act in light of this situation? How are you going to behave in light of the situation? Now, I kind of imagine that, that as I was, uh, if I was Philemon and I'm reading this letter for the first time, more than likely Philemon is reading this and, and he's seeing how this applies to the church at large because that's how we all hear every sermon. Boy, I wish John would be here for this one. Boy, I wish Mary would be here for this one. She really needs to hear this one. I mean, Philemon was, was a leader. He was a teacher. Uh, so, so Paul is praying for the spiritual maturity of the people in the church so that their beliefs would guide them into right behavior. I mean, that's just good teaching. That, that's what we do. And, of course, we now know that Paul is building up to an application for Philemon as well. But he gives more kind words for Philemon. He says, I've derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Notice, again, there's very personal characteristics to this letter. I've derived joy and comfort from your love. This is not just guys who happen to know each other. There's some kind of a closer connection here. He calls Philemon his brother. So there's a a, a bond of some kind, probably more personal than just a brother-in-the-Lord type of relationship. That seems to be cleared out, spelled out a little more clearly in verse 8. He says, accordingly though, I, accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and I. Now we're getting to it. Nice words. Look, Paul has some nice things to say about us. Uh, He's kind of laid the groundwork for his his discussion here, reminds Philemon of their close association, um, applauds him for his efforts for the cause of the kingdom, and then he transitions into the real purpose of this letter. Paul is writing to Philemon to make an appeal of some sort on behalf of Onesimus. 
And again, remember Paul mentioned Onesimus in the closing remarks of uh, Colossians, along with several other names. But Onesimus is kind of the subject here. He's front and center in this letter, not part of a list of names. Well, it turns out that Onesimus, whose name means useful or profitable, he was a former member of the household of Philemon, but in the capacity of a slave or a bondservant. And for reasons left unclear, unstated, Onesimus had escaped. He had run away from Philemon. We don't know why he did. We just know that he did. And, and this was a big deal. Runaway slaves could be killed as punishment. If they were discovered in Rome, they were often put to death on the spot. And not only did Onesimus run away, but it's entirely likely that he may have stolen from Philemon to finance his escape money or, or trinkets or jewelry, or we, we don't really know, but he had to have some means to, to pay for his trip. He probably stole from his boss. Money, goods, whatever, whatever he could sell. I mean, it just, it makes sense that would have been the case. He stole from Philemon so he could run away from Philemon, adding insult to injury. And then, miraculously, perhaps, clearly in the God is sovereign category, Onesimus somehow crosses paths with Paul, who is confined, remember. We don't know how that happens. We don't know how and why the circumstances under which they met, but somehow Paul meets Onesimus, and they've now established a very close relationship. Paul says, I became like his father in my imprisonment. The implication is pretty clear. Onesimus has come to faith in Christ Jesus. Before meeting Paul, after meeting Paul, we don't really know the timeline of how all this worked out. But clearly, Onesimus has come to faith. He's a follower of Jesus Christ. Paul has served as his, as his mentor, as his teacher. And Onesimus has become extremely important to Paul. Because Paul now writes, Formerly he was useless to you, but now he's indeed useful. And this may give us a little insight into the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus. Perhaps, in the time that Onesimus and Paul spent together, uh, Onesimus shared how maybe he'd not been well-treated or he wasn't properly utilized. We, we don't really know, but he was seen as useless. Paul says he was useless to you. Maybe that's some indication as to why he fled. We don't really know. But Paul uses this clever word game here to make his point. He says, Onesimus was useless to you, but his name means useful profitable. So Paul is leading up to this idea that even if Onesimus was useless to you before, now that he is a Christ follower, now that he's putting his, his faith into his actions, now that his faith is guiding his behaviors, he's become very useful to all of us, Christ included. He's a member of the family. Paul seems quite sincere about this. He says, I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord." 
but I'm sending them back to you. I'm sending my very heart. Paul seems to have this true, deep, personal, mentoring type of relationship with Onesimus. He cares about what happens to him. Not just as a fellow believer, but Paul is concerned for him physically as well. He makes that clear. Paul said, I'd be perfectly happy to keep him here with me. Helping me through this period of imprisonment. He has become useful for for Paul. But Paul, rather than focusing on his own needs, Paul is more concerned about the spiritual welfare of both Onesimus and Philemon. He's committed to to the discipleship of them both. Even though the faith of Onesimus seems very real and very genuine, even though he's repented and been forgiven of his sins, he has still wronged Philemon, his brother. And he needs to attempt a resolution or a reconciliation of some kind. Even if that means he returns to the status of a bondservant. And of course, Paul's keenly aware of all the unusual circumstances in this situation, and he's just as concerned about the spiritual welfare of Philemon. He's obviously hoping that when Philemon hears about this life change that's occurred with Onesimus as a result of his coming to faith in Christ, he's become a helper to Paul, that Philemon will change his outlook and his attitude in this whole situation. Even though Philemon has been wronged by this former slave, Paul's trusting that right belief will lead to right behavior. And so we have this test laid out for everyone involved. Paul appeals to the goodness of Philemon, the right beliefs of his faith. And Paul even suggests that maybe this whole thing is divine intervention. Perhaps, perhaps he says, you know, God being sovereign over all things, perhaps God allowed Onesimus to escape knowing that he'd end up with Paul, become a believer, and then be able to return Philemon in an entirely new and different role or capacity. No longer as a bondservant, although that is still a legal possibility. But hopefully, he'll return as a useful, beloved brother. And it's important to note here, I think, that Paul says, I'm not telling Philemon, or as he says, I'm not commanding, I'm not telling you what you have to do. I'm not telling you that you have to wipe out the debt of Onesimus and and accept him into your household as a brother. I'm I'm not telling you, I'm not commanding that. But I could. I could throw my spiritual authority around. I mean, clearly Paul thinks that giving Onesimus his freedom would be the right thing to do here. But he does not command it. Rather, Paul is trying to help Philemon see and and, and agree and, and come to understand that this would be the right thing to do. To grant freedom to Onesimus from whatever the terms of his servitude might be, whether it was a short term, long term, whatever it was, Paul prays that Philemon would come to see the goodness of it. Now, it is true, and it has come under some attack in some circles. Paul does not argue for the complete overthrow of the master slave circumstance prevalent in the culture of the day. Paul could have used this as a as a bully pulpit to call out. Slavery of all kinds. He doesn't do it. He's not out to upend the whole economic backbone of the age, which was entirely dependent on slavery. In fact, Paul's attempt here to reconcile Philemon and Onesimus could have failed miserably, and Onesimus might have become a slave again. But Paul put his faith in the Lord. He, He put his faith in the power of the word of truth. 
And Paul sought not to change the culture, but to subvert it in this situation. To modify it for these two people. Rather than fight for a transformed culture, Paul argues for transformed relationships among the family of God. Based on the fact that Onesimus is now a beloved brother. And that transformed relationship and others like it, Christ followers being driven by right beliefs, that has the power to impact and change the culture. And I think this is what throws so many people off in terms of Christianity. You know, we, we kind of look at it and we, we, we think, you know, there's some good ideas here. That I, I, I kind of understand it, but it, it just doesn't work the way we think it should. It doesn't solve all the problems like we think it should. I mean, why, God, why doesn't God just wipe out evil? Why doesn't God just command us all to, to believe in truth? Why doesn't Jesus compel us to believe in the resurrection and, and to confess sins? Because that's not the way he works. It's the same reason that Paul does not command Philemon here. He wants us to come to these decisions on our own. Love freely given is so much more desirable, so much more meaningful than love commanded. If it's even possible to command somebody to love. Christianity is a paradox. And you remember that the Jews ultimately did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah because he didn't do what they thought he ought to do. He wasn't the Messiah they were looking for. He he didn't come to upend Roman rule. He, He didn't come to overturn the culture of the day. He didn't come to restore Israel to its place of prominence. So he can't be the guy because he doesn't live up to our expectations. Instead, Jesus talked about our own personal, spiritual condition and how we need to find personal forgiveness and make a personal pledge to worship God by, by placing our faith in Jesus. Jesus said, you must be born again, not you must overthrow the government. Each and every one of you has to choose on your own. So Paul is trying to help Philemon choose wisely. So Paul deals with Philemon on this personal basis rather than attacking the whole structure of slavery. But think of the impact this would have in the community if Philemon welcomes back his runaway slave as a brother. How does that story not make its way through the culture? I mean, this would be a testimony to the power of the gospel. And it seems clear that Paul is hoping that Philemon will gain freedom to Onesimus. And Paul says, I'm relying on your goodness towards him and, and his fate rather than compelling you to act in a particular way. And Paul infers he'd like to see Onesimus being utilized in a different capacity. He goes on to say, he's so much more valuable to you now, both in the flesh and in the Lord, as both a servant and a brother. He could benefit, benefit us all in, in such a new and dramatically different way, but I'm leaving it up to you. I'm leaving it up to you to decide what is the right thing to do. Verse 17. So, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he's wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. 
Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. No pressure. So Paul lays out this somewhat persuasive argument here. Uh, If you consider me to be your partner, it's an interesting word choice here. The word partner, the, the Greek word is a form of the word koinonia, which means sharing. So this could infer several things for Philemon. Paul's already referred to Philemon as a fellow worker, but Paul says we're partners. We, we have these things in common. We have these shared goals to advance the kingdom, which means we have a shared faith in Christ Jesus. We have shared in God's grace. We know what that means. We've shared in the forgiveness of sins. We've benefited from God's amazing mercy. And we now share some responsibilities to some extent for the life and future of Onesimus. We're both connected to him. We're partners in his future. But I'm not going to tell you what to do. Now, Paul's responsibility at this point is is primarily, though not exclusively, Paul's interest in Onesimus is tied to his focus on his spiritual well-being. While Philemon's responsibility at this particular moment is more likely focused on the physical life and well-being of Onesimus. But Paul is building this argument that because Onesimus is now a a brother, he's a fellow believer, Philemon ought to consider the spiritual well-being of Onesimus as well. He says, receive him as you would receive me. Now again, I put myself in Philemon's place. If, If I'm reading this letter first time through, and I get to this phrase, receive him as you would receive me, I think this would probably sting just a little bit. Paul is asking Philemon to treat this runaway slave just as Philemon would treat Paul if Paul were to visit. Well, Paul hadn't run away illegally. Paul had not stolen from Philemon when he ran away. Paul had not betrayed whatever relationship may have existed between Philemon and Onesimus. I mean, this is kind of a big ask for Paul. And I think Philemon might have been reading along, you know, and thought, so if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Is he kidding me right now? I am the injured party. I'm in the right. I'm the one who has been wronged. And he's asking me to act as though it never happened. What, forgive and forget? I mean, again, a runaway slave was serious business. If he was caught, he could be put to death, and that was often left to the decision of the master. So Paul's asking Philemon to forego the rightful, lawful, legal punishment and forgive Onesimus on a very personal level. To receive him as though he was more than a bondservant. To receive him as though he was a a fellow worker. To receive him as someone on the same level, social and spiritual level, as Paul himself. This is a huge request. And I suspect here that that Philemon had to pause just a little bit and consider what it was Paul was asking. And then, as he's more calm and composed, he continues reading, and and, and he reads, If he has wronged you, if, if he's wronged me, what's he mean by if? Of course he's wronged me. All right, more deep breaths. Calm and composed. Okay, if he's wronged me or owes me anything, charge it to Paul's account. 
right. <laughs> Paul's going to pay the debt. Sure, Paul's going to write me a check for my losses incurred by Onesimus. Uh, Paul's going to jump up and take the place of a servant. He must be nuts. He's lost his ever-loving mind. Prison is making him crazy. He's going to pay the debt. What else does he say? I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. Huh, he says it twice. Maybe he will write me a check. Maybe if I send him my Venmo account, he'll just transfer some money. Now we're getting somewhere. All right, what else? Paul's, Paul's going to repay it. To say nothing of you owing me even for your own self. What? I will repay it to say nothing of you owing me even for your own self. What do you mean by that? Well, I, I guess he could mean that the only reason that I'm leading a church in my home is because I've become a believer in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I, and I guess I became a believer through the ministry and work of Paul. So in a sense, in a very real and hard to ignore sense, my faith, my salvation, my eternal security is owed in part to Paul because he introduced me to the Lord. And that is the debt that I owe Paul. And I guess all things being equal, when I consider what I owe Paul versus what Onesimus owes me, I mean, I now know, he's just said it again, that every good gift I have comes from the Lord. Forgiveness of sins, God's abundant mercy, I'm a child of God, uh, I've got eternal life, my life is full of overflowing grace. Versus what Onesimus owes me, I mean, he owes me some cash, I guess, maybe some jewelry, those wedding gift cups I didn't really like anyway. I mean, that's all replaceable stuff. I mean, I got some embarrassment for having to deal with a runaway slave. You know, maybe even more embarrassment now if I receive him back as something other than a slave. What are people going to say? We've been shorthanded. You know, that's been inconvenient. I had to pour my own milk on my own cereal the other day. But in the big picture, my debt to Paul, my debt to Christ is far more substantial, far more noteworthy. And from Paul's perspective, my welcoming of Onesimus will provide benefit to Paul as well. And, and deep down, I know it's going to benefit me. And I have to wonder, as, as Philemon paused here to consider this, if he thought, you know, there was a time I stood before the Lord having done far worse to him than Onesimus has ever done to me. The Lord forgave me. He welcomed me back in spite of all the ways that I defended him. I mean, I was running from him for years. And he welcomed me back. Not only did he welcome me, but he improved my status. He upgraded my standing immeasurably. Perhaps I am called to treat Onesimus in the same way, to welcome him back as a brother. You know, one of the elements that often gets overlooked in this story is the fact that while Paul is making this appeal in this letter on behalf of Onesimus, 
Paul sent Onesimus to deliver the letter. We're told at the end of Colossians, Paul told the church that Tychicus was sent to deliver the updates about Paul along with Onesimus. So Paul has initiated this this giant test of faith, testing right behaviors based on right beliefs to all parties concerned. He's challenged Onesimus to walk right back into the lion's den, so to speak. Go confront the one you abused and, and mistreated. Go apologize and try to repair the damage and restore the relationship, and you might end up being a slave again. And then he calls Philemon to forgive and accept Onesimus, not just in theory, not from a distance, but it's entirely possible Onesimus is four feet away looking him in the face. But Paul is so confident in the genuine faith of these two men. He's so confident in the power of the gospel. He's so confident in the overwhelming love of the Father that he writes, confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you'll do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I'll be graciously given to you. Confidence, confident of your obedience. I know that you're going to do even more, above and beyond what I ask you to do. Now, I think this is a test of Paul's faith as well. Are these two men going to respond in the way that he asks, that he hopes, that he prays? He seems confident, clearly, that they will. And this is how he draws this issue to a close. Uh, I believe that between the two of you, you're going to work this out, that you're going to do all, even more than I'm asking you to do. We'll draw this whole ugly episode to a close. I'm hoping to come visit you soon. You know, when I get out of jail, have a room ready for me. And then we get to the customary final greetings. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, Jesus sends greetings to you as so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. As always, Paul starts the letter with grace and he ends it with grace. But he does add a little twist here, something we haven't seen in the other letters. Paul says, the grace of the Lord be with your spirit. I mean, Paul seems to understand that his request here, it's a pretty big thing to ask. It's a pretty big thing to get both of these men to come to terms and resolve this, this relationship to, to restore hurt feelings. Paul knows this is a big thing he's asking. And he knows, left to our own tendencies and traits... One or the other might struggle with this a little bit. Philemon might have a hard time getting over the offense. But with the help of the Spirit, Philemon can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. Now it's interesting, I think, that we don't really know for 100% certainty that it all worked out the way Paul writes. We, we, we don't know for sure that it all came out in the wash. I mean, there is no book of Second Philemon where it says, and this is how it all came, came together. We just don't know. But what we do know is that within a few years' time, there was a man who became the second bishop of Ephesus whose name was Onesimus. 
Now, it's not an uncommon name at the time, necessarily. But it does seem, it seems likely that Philemon granted freedom to Onesimus and, and allowed him to return to Paul where he continued to be tutored, mentored, taught. And Paul was likely jailed in Ephesus. That's where Onesimus would have gone. So the timing and the circumstances all kind of fit together. Most scholars believe it was this Onesimus who became the bishop of Ephesus. And we know that Bishop Onesimus ended up being cruelly tortured in Rome for a period of 18 days. His legs and thighs were broken with clubs, and he was stoned to death in the year 95. This has all the earmarks of a man who understood forgiveness. Who understood the power of redemption and reconciliation from the Lord Jesus. And he was willing to die for what he had learned. So on the surface, I guess we could say that this story about a specific man who had a very specific problem. Interesting story. Doesn't really apply. Honestly, if you've been paying attention, I don't think you have to dig very deep to find there's a larger application for every believer in every age. Philemon had every right to hold Onesimus legally responsible for his actions, but he chose to live up to a moral, a higher moral standard than the law of the day. He chose to let his right beliefs guide his actions, and he chose to forgive his brother, and not just forgive him once. I mean, we all know, we've been in situations where we forgive somebody, but we find we have to keep doing it until we get over it. Forgiveness needs to be repeated sometimes. And Matthew, Peter asked how many times I'm supposed to forgive my brother who sins against me. Up to seven times? Do I have to forgive him at least seven times? And Jesus said, I didn't say seven times. Depending on the translation, I said 77 times, or 70 times seven times. Whatever, it's a lot of times we're supposed to forgive. And seven is often used in Scripture as a symbol of completion or perfection. So Jesus is saying, when we forgive, we need to forgive completely, perfectly. Let it be done. We need to forgive a brother who sins against us. Like God's forgiven us for our many, many grievances against him. We're called to repent and confess our sins, and God is always faithful. He is always just. He will always forgive our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. So as we prepare for communion this morning, we're told we need to prepare for it. We, we, we need to prepare our hearts and our, and our minds and our spirits. So if there is any unconfessed sin in your life this morning, you need to search it out. You need to confess it. You need to find forgiveness knowing that God is faithful. He'll do what he said he would do. But we should also consider our standing with others. Have we offended someone and we've, we've not yet sought forgiveness, not yet apologized? Then we're called to make it right. Has someone offended us and we're, we're kind of hanging on to it? Too tightly, we're, we're, we're refusing to forgive? then we need to set that right as well. And forgive the trespass, even if it's not been asked for yet. And we really have nothing to lose here because we know we can count on the perfect love of the Father who himself forgives us perfectly. 
So we're going to prepare for communion, and I'm going to have the, the team come up and play a song as we pass out the elements this morning. And I think we're just going to allow time for each of you to deal with whatever you may need to deal with this morning. So as soon as you get the bread and cup, whenever you're ready to partake, you can do that personally on your own this morning. Don't wait for everybody else. You take whatever time you need to set things right. Let your actions follow your faith. And then we'll close with the final song, and that will be the end of me for you today. Yay! So I'm going to pray. Do we have, I think Tim's teaching uh, people who do offering, I mean the communion. All right. So let's pray. Lord, first of all, we are grateful for your wisdom. Uh, In spite of all these uh, years, decades, centuries of scholars and commentators saying, this book doesn't really belong in Scripture, Um, your providence Your sovereignty has made sure that this stayed included in the canon of Scripture, and it teaches us such deep lessons. Even even though the the circumstances may may be completely different than anything we're facing in our own personal life, Lord, there's so much application, there's so much depth here for us to, to study and to learn from. And being human beings in this world, we have people whom we have offended, and we have people who have offended us, and there may be hurt feelings, and there may be uh, wounds, and uh, Lord, your word says, as far as it's up to us, we are to be at peace with all men. So I pray that you give us strength. I I pray that you give us uh, determination to to right those wrongs, to restore relationships. You give us a clear heart and a a sound mind to to find what those issues are, um, whether they reside in us, Lord, I pray that we clear those out, we, we, we confess, we repent, we ask for forgiveness, and we approach this Lord's table um, with confidence, knowing that we are beneficiaries of your great love and your sacrifice and your forgiveness of our sins. We're thankful for the love that is on display here, that you are willing to die for us, for, for the whole world, all of whom have rebelled and sinned against you, and yet you are willing to forgive to send your son to die in our place. And we're thankful for the gift of this sacrifice. As we take this bread and this cup, we, we remember the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who gave his own body for us. Lord, so guide, guide our thoughts, our, our hearts, our minds. Help us see those things that have been uh, maybe hidden, maybe pushed down, that we have this time of confession and repentance and we can joyfully enter this remembrance of your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.